Bulimia sucks, but you don't, and here's why. The Bulimia Sucks podcast with Kate Hudson Hall will teach you how to begin breaking through the multitude of thoughts, feelings, triggers, and urges to empower yourself to change your painful behaviors completely. You will hear proven strategies and solutions to help you in your recovery, including real interviews with real people. Kate has just released a new best-selling book called Anxiety Hacks with proven techniques, tools, and tips to calm this. Check it out now on Amazon. And now... Another episode of Bulimia Sucks, the podcast. So my name is Kate hudson Hall, and thank you for listening to Bulimia Sucks because it does. So this is a platform for people to share relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations based on bulimia and anorexia and other eating disorders. And these are real stories from people who are suffering or have suffered an eating disorder. And episodes will include their personal stories of where they are now and their difficult journeys and their steps taken into recovering from their eating disorder. And we'll also be talking to professionals who work with people with eating disorders. Our lovely guest today is Meg. Now, Meg has recovered from um, five years of bulimia and anorexia, and she believes the key to recovery is cultivating resilience, patience, self-forgiveness, and self-compassion. And she's a CCI certified eating disorders recovery coach. And she helps people break free from food obsession to live a life that's present, joyful and meaningful. And Meg helps clients on a one-to-one basis, coaching her clients, focusing on behavior change and mindset. And in January, Meg started the Recovery Collective which is a membership for people who are overcoming an eating disorder. So we want to know more about this. (laughs) So welcome, Meg. It's lovely to have you on the show. We are honoured to have you here. Thank you, Kate. It's a true honour to be on your show today. I am so thankful that there are people like you sharing their stories about recovering from bulimia, because I feel like that is something that's not widely spoken about right now in the world. And so when I heard you had this podcast, I was so excited that you invited me on. So thank you so much. Oh, it's wonderful to have you here. So now tell us, Meg. So do you have a funny story for us? I do. I have a funny story oh, completely good. We love it. to my eating disorder, but um it's my fun fact. You know, when people ask for fun facts, yeah, yeah, um, like icebreaker question, I will say my face has been on 45 U-Haul trucks. <laughs> most strange fun fact, very random. And this happened because I was actually on a date. I didn't tell you this before we started recording. I was on a date and we were running through Brooklyn, New York, having a great time. And I saw this U-Haul truck with Anne of Green Gables on the front of it. And I'm a huge fan 
of Anne of Green Gables. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of like a cult. If you like Anne of Green Gables, you are dedicated. And so <laughs> I insisted that this person take my photo in front of the U-Haul truck. And at the time I had reddish hair. So it really looked like we were kind of related, me and Anne. <laughs> I took the photo. I was so excited. I posted it on Instagram and tagged U-Haul. Yeah, yeah. And then a day or two later, they asked for my permission to use the photo. And then I would say a few weeks went by and then they reached out to me again saying, congratulations, your face is now on 45 U-Haul trucks across the United States. <laughs> and I have, I got to tell you, I have almost gotten in car crashes because every time I pass a U-Haul truck on the road, I just got to look at it. I got to check to see if that's the one with my face on it. I've never found it. So who knows if oh, we need people to help us. We need all the help we can get. <laughs> I'm not really going to be much help in the UK, but anybody in the States listening, you've got to watch out for the U-Haul and look and see Anna Green Gables and with her twin Meg on the, yeah. on the side and quickly take a picture of it and then you can send it to us. <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be so helpful. So I would know what it looks like, and it would prevent potentially a future crash by mistake. Because you could be saving lives by helping us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, I love that story. That's excellent. That is so funny. So Meg, now, so tell us about. So you had bulimia and anorexia. So tell us about when that started and what you feel kind of caused you to enter that that difficult pathway mm -hmm. so when I was growing up I was kind of a lanky string bean body type <laughs> like very tall lanky and that is a body type that many people might strive for right and that was something I had naturally I've always been really athletic, but I always felt out of place. You know, I didn't have any curves. I was very, um, I'm almost six feet tall. I have an identical twin sister and we were both mortified by like our bodies and the way we looked growing up. Cause it's just very awkward looking. And so then they, you both that tall. You both nearly six foot tall. Oh, fabulous. Yeah. Yes. It, I love being tall, but it was a little uncomfortable growing up yeah. just being yeah. so tall and not curvy at all. It was just like, anyway, um, there was some insecurity going into high school and then during high school. So I went to high school in the mid two thousands. And during that time, the, the show America's next top model was really popular. I don't know if you ever watched that show. I no, I haven't, but I've heard of it. Yeah. It was extremely triggering because they would have girls on the show and they would post their heights, their weights, and then their measurements on the screen. Oh. Like every contestant. And there were scenes where they were measuring the girls. And I, was, I looked up at that, that show every week and I was like, I'm not too far off from that. I'm, I'm as tall as those girls. They're a little bit thinner than me. And oh. my measurements don't match up, but I could reach that easily. Oh. Like I, it was like, I, so I started measuring myself. I started trying to reach the weights of the girls on the show because my saving grace, I was like, well, you know, 
maybe I could be a model. Maybe, maybe I could do this. And I got a lot of positive reinforcement from like my peers. Cause that was the show everyone watched. So they're like, Hey, you're really tall and maybe you should try out for the show or like become a model. So I became obsessed with fitting that runway body size at size. Uh, so when I was 18 and actually younger than that, I'd say it all started when I was 16, I started looking for agents to represent me. And I, I lived in Connecticut, which is just a quick train ride away from New York city. So I found myself on the weekends meeting with agents, trying to get signed. Like I wanted this so desperately that the eating disorder was really wrapped up into this dream also of this glamorous lifestyle and being able to travel and do photo shoots. And so eventually I, you know, they, they, the eating disorder quote unquote worked in the fact that I was able to reach that size and I got signed with an agency and lived, yeah, and lived and worked in New York City for Fashion Week. It was a very brief stint because my body was fighting against me. It did not want to be that size. Um, you know, my set points higher than the range of those runway models naturally. Yes, yes. And um, I had raging bulimia during the time I was living in New York City, you know, so um, I couldn't... So I was only there for about six months, but I would go up during, so I lived there for six months working after I graduated high school. But um, the summers leading up to that, I would go for several months at a time to try to get some jobs and network and meet people in the field. And that was a very toxic environment. There was no body positivity back then. It was just Kate Moss was the idol, you know, she was kind of the, the ultimate body type to strive for and curves weren't embraced at all. And so, um, it was just a rough time to be a model. Like any, I feel like any veteran models now who are still, still modeling from the same time I was, they, they could probably tell you that the industry has transformed in a big way due to Instagram. Um, I would say. But yeah, so after about six months, um, because I would say there's a, they embrace size diversity a tad bit more now Yeah. in the, in the high fashion cities. So like London, New York, Paris, Milan, but not a ton. There's still very little size and racial diversity, but because of Instagram, models are more self-empowered because they can, they don't need agents anymore. Yeah. So they can be their own size, whatever size they naturally are and book jobs. And they don't have an, they don't necessarily have an agent who have, who the, um, basically the commercial product or whatever the, or the fashion designer, they don't have to work directly with agents anymore. They can work directly with the models. So models don't have to be told lose X amount of weight and we will book you. It's a little bit different. Yeah. 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 Also the, the modeling industry has changed because the amount of followers you have on Instagram 
gives you a leg up when it comes to booking jobs. So if you have a million followers on Instagram, like the, like so many of these children of celebrities, they're going to book the Mark Jacobs show because if they post about it one time, a million people will see it. We're back in the 2000, early 2000s, a farm girl from Nebraska with, with no big name could book the Mark Jacobs show and just rock it off to fame. But now they really do measure value a little bit more with followers. So that's a whole different topic. I think they but. do that in a lot of different um, uh, careers, don't they, as well? Probably, like acting, a lot of yeah. the arts, maybe. Yeah, they do, yeah. So, so you spent six months in New York modeling. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh. And that was hard because I did have very active bulimia at that time. So um, m- multiple episodes of using behaviors every single day. And also I was walking everywhere um, because Manhattan is a very, very walkable place. So I dropped even more weight and Um, what caused it all to spiral out of control. So I had everything very controlled at first, you know, getting there and I know, you know, what I need to eat. I know what size I need to be, what weight I need to be. And then they actually sent me. So my agent sent me to get a facial before I went to castings for fashion week and the facialist burned my skin. So it was, it was very, as a kid, you know, I was 18. So my perspective on life was very small. I did not have any long-term thinking or reasoning. I was like, that was my chance and it is ruined now. No one's ever going to want to book me for any shows. And I didn't even say to myself, oh, you know, there are multiple fashion weeks a year. You'll just do the next one. You know, so I, I put all this pressure on this one moment of my life and the, the burned face caused my bulimia to just reach this extremely chaotic state. Gosh. I would, yeah, a lot of binging occurred during that, those few weeks. And I rapidly just gained a lot of weight back. I could not maintain that body size because I was just emotionally out of control. The food was out of control. So once I regained a lot of weight due to a lot of the binge eating. I um, wasn't definitely wasn't booking any jobs and decided one one night after an episode of purging, unfortunately, that I should probably leave. And that was the first time I heard my healthy self speak up, Mm -hmm. I think. My healthy voice, you know, in recovery, we're always talking about the eating disorder voice and the healthy voice and my healthy voice just booming really loud was like, you do not have to be here anymore. You can leave, you can move home. And I had never considered that because I had such tunnel vision on this dream and the food and the eating disorder. So once I heard that thought, and I think we think about 60,000 thoughts a day, something ridiculous like that. Once that thought was offered to me, I held on to it kind of like a life raft. I was like, I could leave. <laughs> what would that look like if I just decided not to do this modeling anymore? And the next day I went into my agency and I told them I was leaving and I was moving back home and maybe I'd be back. 
newsflash, I didn't end up going back. (laughs) um, I just ended up going to college. And then that's where recovery really started because I, I moved home to focus on recovery. And so I got a dietitian and a therapist and worked with them to heal. And, um, I took a whole, I took a semester off of school before starting. So that was a really nice time for me to like heal my relationship with food. And then throughout college, there was still bulimia happening, but, um, over time I was able to eliminate the overt behaviors and then just go. So did you have the same therapist throughout the time at college from that summer and then all the way through, or did you? Yes, I did have the same therapist throughout the whole process, which was really helpful. And the coolest part, like I look back at myself as a a young lady recovering and I really admire how honest she was with her therapist and not so much the people around her, but with my therapist, that was my chance to really share. And And I think that's important for people to hear, isn't it? It is. I I talk about the importance of being honest with your care team all the time, because that's what I experienced. I I was super honest with my therapist. And I think that really helped me make massive growth faster than if I was lying about everything, you know, it's not going to work if you're lying and you're because you're not being true to yourself, let alone the therapist or whoever it is you're talking to. And that's a real root that you have to sort of delve into and decide that you're going to be true to yourself and, you know, that person, that trusted person. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't really honest with everyone else around me. And that is what I would say was one of the most difficult parts about going through recovery in general was, and having bulimia was the secrecy of the illness, you know, just, yeah, it's a very secretive mental health issue. And so I, it took me a while to really open up to my friends and family about what was going on. Although I was able to open up to the therapist very easily. (laughs) But were you living at home? For the first semester. So I took a semester off from school, right? Once I moved home from New York, I was living at home and that was a a very hard, but precious time. It's interesting because I look back at my recovery. It's like, a a gift so I think I look back at that time as even though it was hard a a positive time in my life because I had let go of that toxic modeling environment I was starting to heal my body image my relationship with food Um, my mom although I wasn't super open about what was going on verbally she knew what was going on and but I do remember having little night episodes where I would just binge in the in the kitchen. Like I would wait for everyone to go to sleep. And then I would just start kind of binge eating because it was very chaotic. My recovery, I say it was like quick and dirty because it was just very chaotic. And I learned a lot from that fast chaotic experience. Um, And so I would have these little episodes in the kitchen and then it got to the point where my mom would hear me and she would just come, come downstairs and sit with me and we wouldn't even really talk about it, but it would help me just pull back into my present self. And so if I, I would probably eat whatever I had in front of me and then I would like 
move on with the night instead of getting into this like food frenzy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm very thankful for that. And it's um, very touching to think about that. And that's one reason why I think coaching is so powerful because my mom kind of served that role in a way, because she was there for me and helped me through those moments where I was using behaviors just by being there, just by giving me an opportunity to connect with her in the height of the moment. And as a coach, that's something I offer my one-on-one clients, which is if you're experiencing a behavior or if you have an urge to use behavior, you can reach out to me for tech support or send me a voice message. And sometimes just externalizing your thoughts can help dissolve the tension and give you the relief you're seeking. Uh, yeah, and make it conscious because you're going to a, a, a form of trance yes. when, you're, when you're, you know, binging. Mm-hmm. And by reaching out to you and, and picking up the phone and texting, it's, it's going to completely bring you back into your conscious mind, isn't it? Exactly. It takes you, it, it brings you back into your conscious mind and it reminds you of your healthy self as well. If you add another person to it, at least for me, I wanted to show them my healthy self. I did not want to show them my eating disorder self. I know that's not the case for everyone, but when I brought another person into the mix, I was like, oh, I'm fine. (laughs) Like I can handle, you know, I'm going to just be normal now for for a hot second. Um, So yeah, the reaching out for help is huge with coaching and that's something really special about it. So before we move on to your your specific coaching, because I want you to explain about your coaching. So I had a question. So you've got an identical twin sister. And did she watch that show with you? The, the yes. marketing show? She did. And did she ever pick up the way you picked up the, the, the thoughts and the negative behaviors? Yes. So unfortunately, and this is something that is really sad to me. I think I was moving that train. You know, I was one who wanted to have that glamorous life of becoming a model and losing all the weight. My sister was happy with her body for the most part and who she was. But when your identical twin is dropping weight and trying to become this high fashion model, there is this comparison factor. I mean, everyone compares themselves to people in general, I feel like but twins are compared immediately by everyone. It's like the fun thing about twins, you know, what are the differences? And so she didn't want to be the the larger body twin or the obviously larger twin. So she started dieting almost just to keep up with me. And that developed her own issues. And um, she also struggled with bulimia, but we didn't talk to each other about it. And, um, we, I feel bad because I really don't think she would have had that issue if it wasn't for me moving that train, like I said. So, but she, you know, we're both recovered now. Her journey and my journey were probably very different. She didn't end up modeling, um, which is, shows you how cutthroat the industry was back then because they would measure us and her measurements were just not small enough. So she didn't end up getting that contract. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? Um, But uh, so that probably hurt her self-esteem a little bit, even though we literally look exactly alike. Yeah. Yeah. But she, we're both recovered now and 
we're living very different lives. She actually works um, in tech. You know, she's a woman in tech and here I am in mental health. We just went totally different directions. (laughs) (laughs) So so tell us about, um, tell us about your coaching now and, um, and how you help your clients. Sure. And about the membership. Awesome. So I do work one-on-one with clients, mostly clients with anorexia or bulimia. That seems to be who I work with. Um, and the process is, um, it's, it's very supportive and it's very personalized. So a person will come to me and we will set goals. You know, a lot of coaching is very actionable. It's a lot of very goal oriented, at least for me. Because I encourage my clients to work with therapists and dietitians as well. I want to be part of their recovery team. So my role is to help them with mostly behavior change. So we're constantly trying to minimize those behaviors and eventually eliminate them. I might be supporting them in, for instance, helping them follow a meal plan. So if the dietitian sets a meal plan, I'm working with the dietitian on ways to help them actually reach that plan. And then eventually setting challenges to add flexibility and transition into intuitive eating. Um, And then a lot of mindset coaching as well. So talking about the healthy self and the eating disorder self and how can we challenge the eating disorder self? What thoughts do we need to think so that you do not engage in that behavior or so that your anxiety isn't spiraling out of control? Uh, So it can evolve into a special, unique process and very different goals for everyone. So at the end of every session, I collaboratively set goals with my clients based on their specific needs. Um, And I try to make sure they're There are a few food behavior goal, you know, behavior change goals related to food and maybe some of those kind of recovery sabotaging behaviors. So it might be um, stop, you know, throw out your scale, throw out the clothes that don't fit anymore, those sorts of things. And then maybe some journaling or meditation. I do try to bring in that holistic view as well. So, um, Like I'll have every one of my clients, like our first session, we're always talking about why they want to recover in detail, like all the big reasons, but also the small reasons. Like I want to eat cheesecake, you know, it's like in detail, why do you want to recover? And then creating a recovery vision on that. And I actually ask them to meditate on that vision every morning for at least 10 minutes. Lovely. Yes. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And having that vision. Yes. Yeah. Because you need to connect to your why you need to connect to that vision every single day to remind you of why you're doing this. Cause it's very easy to forget. Yeah. So a lot of the, the coaching process, it's not just about food. There's a lot of other stuff involved. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it depends and everybody's different, aren't they? So it depends on, you know, some things work for some people and other things work for others. And so it's figuring out what would work with that individual and having like a big toolbox, isn't it? And then seeing what. Yeah. Like there are definitely 
key tools that I will spend a session or two going over with my client. And we're constantly reinforcing those tools and referring back to them. So what would the tools be? So so, so the meditation, having that that visualization, would that be one of the tools? Yeah, that would be one. Also, we'll do a whole session on dialoguing. So writing out those conversations between the eating disorder self and the healthy self. We'll do that multiple weeks though, because that is fundamental and then we'll um i'll spend a lot of time teaching about like grounding techniques how to manage anxiety Um, we'll we'll talk about tools as far as utilizing people around you so how to reach out to friends and family when you're in need how to reach out to your coach you know different things some people are very scared to reach out for help even if they hire a coach they might not be reaching out at first. You have to actually practice doing that sometimes. Everything is unique to the person. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Amazing. So now yeah. tell us about your membership program. Thank you for asking. So the membership was something it's so exciting. <laughs> it is so exciting. I'm so proud of it. It's definitely one of the most fulfilling things I've ever done in my life, just creating this community. And that is because I think when I was going through my recovery, I felt very isolated. I wasn't talking to anyone about my recovery. And nowadays there are more opportunities to connect with people because of Instagram and Facebook, but sometimes those spaces are very triggering and they can turn into a very dark space very quickly. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I go on those um, public Facebook pages for support, they, I could see how they might be triggering or um, just very much. Yeah. Yeah. Dark energy. I found this need to create a community based in kind of encouragement and friendship and fun. I am the biggest nerd about friendship. I love friends. I love connecting with people. That is the thing that lights me up. I love community. I just want everyone to be having fun. Like that is my essence. So I wanted to put something like that in a community for eating disorder recovery, which seems like such a weird thought at first, because usually recovery communities have this heaviness. But I wanted to bring a bit of lightness into the recovery space. And so I, my vision, and this is what it is now, is that people would, for less than the cost of a therapy session, have access to different professionals and role models in the field on all different subjects. So every month my members receive first, which is really fun. They have group coaching workshops with me. There's usually a workshop uh, from a professional or role model. So in June, we're having Carolyn Costin present to our group, which is going to be very exciting. Amazing. (laughs) We have um, a dietitian joins us monthly for a cook-along. So once a month, we'll all get together and cook on Zoom. And that's really fun. We also have a trauma-informed yoga instructor and we'll do gentle yoga together to bring some of that mind body connection in. And then of course, there's a lot of downloadable content like meditations and recipes and journaling prompts that people receive within the community. I've got a fun game that you could introduce. Ooh, yeah. I'm, I'm curious. What is it? 
hunt the U-Haul. <laughs> you can tell oh, me that, couldn't you? Uh-huh. The thing is that this group of individuals in the collective right now are so we are just so close already. It's been a few months, but because we're seeing each other for several hours a month on these calls, everyone's, it feels like we're really good friends. So if I posted about the U-Haul truck, I bet someone would find it within like two days. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So yeah, that is, the membership is just really amazing. how How do people sign up for it? So we, we have a website, which I'm sure I, I'll send you the link so you can maybe yes. post it in the show notes. What is um, the website? It is, well, we're actually going to be changing the, the link soon because okay. we had a recent name change. Um, so it, by June 1st, it will all be different a different link. So I'll have to send you that. Yeah, uh, but so we'll post it below. We'll post yes, it below. we'll post it below. So they can go to the website. They can also access us on Instagram. So right. I'll send you that link as well. The, the recovery collective Instagram. Yeah. And so that that's how people can sign up. And once you do, you get access to a whole library of content from previous months. So if one of your favorite influencers hosted a workshop, you could access that because everything's recorded and saved so there's a library of meditations and recipes and everything just waiting for you just waiting for you and there and i love that you sort of have built this community and you're you're all becoming friends or you have become friends it is it is very amazing and we need it right now because of what happened in 2020 you know i think everyone felt very isolated and couldn't really meet in person for a while. So this is also a result of that. I think people are searching for community and the internet is a great place to find that now. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited about your membership. That's incredible. (laughs) Okay. But we will post all the links for people to find out more below. Um, And I will post them on our Bulimia Sucks Facebook group as well if people wanted to, and or just email me and I can let them know. <laughs> Amazing. I appreciate your support so much. Mm, absolutely. Okay, so we're coming to the end of our time here. So is there anything else that you feel that you would like to tell our listeners with regards to um, how they could um, begin to break through that negative pattern? and mm-hmm. that decision to begin to step onto the pathway mm-hmm. of recovery what would you say to for me when I was recovering the biggest shift was when I realized that my size was no longer worth the struggle of having bulimia like there was an immediate shift that made everything easier which is all of this this restriction, this feeling gross, this nauseousness, everything that comes with the bulimia, none of this is worth being this size anymore. I would rather trade all of that in and reach my set point, whatever that may be, and accept my body the way it is because I do not want to have this obsession with food anymore. So it was a very clear switch for me. And I, I found also that 
another big turning point was deciding not to, not to purge for the first time because it was so automatic. So interrupting that behavior. What did you do to interrupt it? It was a, you know what it was? It was just a conscious stopping myself because I had thought about how awful this was. I didn't want to feel sick anymore. I didn't want to be con- connected to, you know, everything that bulimia is connected to. And so there was just a moment where I was there and I had a choice. I could use this behavior or not. And I just had the courage to not use the behavior one time. And I rode the wave, you know, I felt uncomfortable, I felt sick. And I just decided to deal with the discomfort. And bulimia was my form of relief. So without that relief, I had to face the emotions that come with feeling uncomfortable. But once I rode that wave, I had the bravery to do it once I said to myself, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. You know, that wasn't so bad. I'm maybe I can try that again. And so eventually it that's, that was so powerful for me to just have the bravery to stop the behavior once. And then I wasn't perfect. Definitely did not do a cold Turkey stopping of that behavior, but um, over time, that courage built up momentum. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then I learned. Because there's, a, there's an amazing technique, and I'm sure that you probably know it, called urge surfing. Mm-hmm. So the mindfulness technique. So it's actually we're so used to trying to push that, that feeling away, but it's actually turning towards that, that negative urge and riding mm-hmm. those waves, isn't it? Exactly. That it, it's so funny because there were so many things that I was doing as a teenager to help myself recover, but I didn't, I didn't have a name to connect them with. And that's exactly what I did. I just surfed the urge, urge surfing. That is, that is what I did. I just embraced the urge in a way, but I didn't act on it. I just felt the emotions that came up and it, I always think of, you know, when dogs, um, you want to take your dog out for a walk and it's raining and they like put their feet down and they are like, I'm not going out. That's what it felt like to me. It's just like, I felt like I had to just prevent myself from, from using any behaviors just for a quick few seconds. And then the tension just kind of, you feel the emotions and then you feel the tension dissolve away and you're like, I did it. Yeah. I did it. And that wasn't so bad. Yeah. Um, so in, that, my, in my book, Bulimia Sucks, I have a whole section on urge surfing and how to practice that. And it's just amazing to be able to, because, it, it, you know, you're riding the waves it's as if you're a surfer and you're riding those waves. It's sitting with that urge because as painful and difficult as that might be the first time, the second time, it's not going to be as intense. Yes. So it'll reduce and become less and reduce each time. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I found that stopping that behavior really helped me with intuitive eating too, because it really helped me become super aware of how my body felt for the first time instead of not connecting with my body, which I had been doing. It was like, okay, I'm just going to feel this food inside of me, sit with that. And I know what it feels like to 
feel uncomfortably full. And that also helped me because I felt I was more embodied once I stopped using that behavior. Yeah. And I think, you know, that just by preventing yourself from reaching out for that food and going on that binge for the first time, it's going to empower you to, to take, start to take control Mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. the next time or maybe the next time after that it depends exactly each time yeah. you do it, that feeling will become stronger that you can overcome this yeah difficult and, yeah and for me I will say this um with the like there there's two sides of bulimia right the binge and the purge for me focusing on not purging was a lot more helpful than focusing on not binging. I don't know why, but for me, it was like, I had to focus on not purging first. And then the binging, I was able to manage over time and reconnect with my intuition. Right. So that might be a shift. So if someone here is focused on, I can't binge, I can't binge. It's like maybe your body needs that food still, maybe just allow yourself to eat what you need, but just don't react after yeah. respond more mindfully after. And that's something I notice when I talk to people that there's not so much emphasis on, on the purge part, like stopping the purge. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Have you, uh, I think everybody's different. Hmm. Um, so I think that's just, you know, I think that's definitely a question that people should ask themselves and and see which one is more powerful to them and see which one they need to focus on. You know, is it, you know, allowing yourself to eat a certain amount of food and then, okay, and make that decision, right? I am not going to, but I'm not going to make myself sick. I'm not going to purge, you know, or vice versa. Yeah. So I think yeah. you know, that's, that's definitely an avenue that people could start to open up to and start to experiment with, you know, what have they got to lose? Yeah, I felt, I felt like, yeah, it's different for everyone. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So, Meg, well, thank you so much for coming on our show. Journey and all the amazing work that you're doing. Thank you so much. It's a true pleasure to be here. And I'm so thankful that we got to connect today. And I appreciate you giving me a chance to share my story with your audience. Yeah, and we think it would be great if you wrote a book about your story. <laughs> I will let you know, you'll be the first person I send my future book to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you, Meg, for joining us. So that's all for today's episode of Bulimia Sucks. And thank you to everybody for listening. And join us again on our next episode of Bulimia Sucks. And make sure that you subscribe to the podcast on Apple iTunes so you never miss an episode. Plus, if you haven't already heard about it, which I've already just mentioned, check out my book, Bulimia Sucks, which is on Amazon. And just yesterday, the Bulimia Sucks food journal has, uh, is now on Amazon. So check that out now too. And hopefully it will be able to help you to begin to break your, your patterns and help you with your eating. And so before we go, let us know what you think about the show. Show us some of your love, your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening, on Spotify or Google Podcasts. And then, like I said, come and check us out on 
Bulimia Sucks on Facebook, where we'll have all Meg's links as well there. Um, and, and we'd love to chit chat with you there. So thanks for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. Bulimia Sucks but you don't. Kate has just released a new best-selling book called Anxiety Hacks with proven techniques, tools, and tips to calmness. Check it out now on Amazon. 